Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. Well, let me do that again. I, I love like how you do that. That was weird. That was very weird. NPR Ooh. Adam. <laughs> I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, December 16th. This will be our last podcast episode of the year as we approach the holidays. And here's what we're going to talk about this week. That's Helen Branswell will join us to discuss Omicron, boosters, and the past and future of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll review the year that was in biotech, plus talk about some of the biggest news of the week. JP Morgan is virtual, but first a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley of STAT. Each year, approximately 500,000 people worldwide are diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Currently, treatment options are limited for people who have relapsed. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, can you tell us about what Genentech is researching for people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Sure, Angus. We are researching several treatment options with different mechanisms of action and novel combinations in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. One area of research we're particularly encouraged by is bispecific antibodies, which are a form of immunotherapy designed to use the body's own immune system to destroy cancer cells. We're hopeful that our investigational antibodies will unlock new possibilities in patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. For more information, visit gene.com forward slash hematology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash hematology. As we record what is our last episode of 2021, we thought it was only fitting to ask the guests who joined us, I think most frequently throughout the year, to come back one more time and help us reflect on it all. Stats senior writer covering infectious diseases and global health, Helen Branswell, has helped us navigate the ever-changing waters of this pandemic, and she's here to help us one more time. Helen, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Hi, I'm honored to be your on your last pod of the year. <laughs> So, Helen, uh, you had a great story again this week, and I'm just going to read the headline because it basically says it all. Um, Will we always need COVID-19 boosters? The answer, the short answer to that is no one knows for sure at this moment. Um, But, you know, the longer answer is that when I talk to a bunch of immunologists, vaccinologists, uh, virologists, it's not a given that we're going to need, like, endless successions of boosters and it remains to be seen what happens with the development of variants and whether those variants can get to the point where they com- can completely escape immunity and and really um, infect huge numbers of people and cause serious disease. But from what we're seeing so far, the vaccines are doing the job they're supposed to. They are arming people with, um, you know, the types of immune uh immunity weapons that we need to be able to encounter this virus and have it, you know, potentially infect us, but not kill us. Or for that matter, put people in the hospital. And and to that point, Anthony Fauci uh, was speaking publicly on Wednesday um, after some, some new data related to the Moderna vaccine. But the gist seemed to be that 
you know, to your point, and I'm cribbing from your story, that booster shots and vaccination in general is they're educational tools for the immune system in ways that go beyond just neutralizing antibodies. It appears that people learn how to protect or people's bodies learn how to protect themselves against this virus in ways that that are beyond what we have tended to focus on in terms of measurable efficacy, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the the immune system is multi-layered. We tend to focus most on neutralizing antibodies because they're the easiest thing to measure and it has become clear over the you know, months since um COVID vaccines have been put into use that high levels of anti um neutralizing antibodies sort of equate to protection against any kind of infection. And as those neutralizing antibodies start levels start to decline, you can actually start to see breakthrough infections. But, you know, the, the other arms of the immune system are still there and kick into gear. And those are the parts that, you know, the B cells that generate new um, antibodies and the T cells, the killer T cells that, that, um, also engage and find infected cells and, and destroy them. Uh, those parts of the immune system seem to be still working strong. I, what Dr. Fauci uh, said yesterday about the Moderna vaccine and officials or scientists um, at a press conference at the World Health Organization uh, held said is that, you know, they're still seeing that um, the protection generated by those layers of the immune system seem to be working well uh, still against um, Omicron, which is, is good news because, you know, there's abundant evidence now from trial um, studies that have been conducted very, very quickly that uh, Omicron does seem to be able to get by a lot of the protection offered by neutralizing antibodies. And sort of along those lines, um, just taking stock of where we've come in the past year, thinking back to this time in 2020, we were all just watching the first people get vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. We were anticipating the Moderna rollout. We were, you know, counting how many doses were available and trying to figure out where they were going and whether, you know, half the stock was being held back as second doses. And there were all these arguments over it. But like universally, public health experts were cheering on the vaccine and they were all on the same page. And it's not that they're not cheering on the vaccine now, but there's this divergence among some experts about booster shots, namely, you know, folks like Dr. Paul Offit at CHOP, who is this renowned vaccine expert and scientist and whose, you know, public health uh, opinions I you know value very much, who says we don't need booster shots because the two doses hold up against severe disease. And he holds that position, you know, even with Omicron's um, additional ability to escape the vaccine protections. I'm just wondering how you, Helen, as a journalist I look up to so much, like when, when you see people who have such experience diverging to this extent, how do you reconcile those kinds of things um, as you, you know, do your work on this? Oh, thanks, Meg. Um, and I look up to you. Um, you know, when the White House announced in uh, August, I think it was August 18th, that all adults in the United States were going to be offered booster shots starting in the week of September 20th, I was like, wait, what? And I talked to a lot of uh, experts at the time, most of whom thought they you know, we didn't need booster shots, or at least the evidence was not in yet 
that booster shots would be required. I would say that in the, you know, subsequent weeks with the emergence of um, Omicron and also just watching, you know, the performance of two doses of vaccine in places like Israel that, you know, were ahead of other parts of the world, I think the ground has shifted a bit on that. I th- Fewer of the people I talk to now are, you know, in the Paul Offit camp. I Most of them, I think, see the benefit of a third dose. You know, th- one of the things you have to consider here is the role of the vaccine is obviously to protect the individual, but it's also a hugely important tool for protecting the healthcare system. You know, the whole goal of this, uh, other than to keep people from dying, is to ensure that the healthcare system doesn't get so swamped that it collapses and cannot um, care for people who've had heart attacks or people who've been in uh, car crashes. And uh, one of the s- serious dangers of the big waves of COVID infections is that it puts the healthcare system in a place where it can't do that. And I think, um, you know, one of the arguments at this point for boosters, especially in the face of a variant as uh, transmissible as Omicron, is that if, you know, we're going to have so many more breakthrough infections, it's true that most of those individuals will probably be absolutely fine. And um, that was always true with COVID. And it will be more true now that a lot of people have two and even three doses of vaccine on board. But when you have a lot more people infected, even if the percentage of people who need care is small or smaller than it was before vaccines were rolled out, you're still going to put huge, huge stress on the healthcare system. And, you know, we've seen how parts of the country have struggled to cope with the Delta wave. And now to hear that Omicron is more transmissible than Delta, one of the things I think we can feel fairly confident about is that the boosters will help the entire system get through this next wave. So, Helen, as as Tony Fauci has famously said, uh, you are a warrior. So I do, I do wonder, like, you know, if, as you think about the months ahead, you know, you know, maybe not a, a year ahead, but in the months ahead. I mean, what are you what are your thoughts about kind of where we're headed? And and, you know, maybe if you don't want to give a prediction, like what are you looking for in the months ahead? You know, it's been almost two years since I've been reporting on this thing. Right. I first saw the report out of China on New Year's Eve 2019. And there were certainly times earlier in the pandemic when I had, I felt I had a better sense of where things were going. I don't know that I anticipated, in fact, I'm sure I didn't anticipate Omicron. I, um, I hoped we would be further along now than we are. And so it feels foolhardy to, to make, too many predictions. Um, I I will say, you know, we, I think we've talked about this before. I think the immunological landscape in the world is changing. There are just so many more people who have some weapons with which to fight this um, virus, whether it is, you know, vaccine-induced or infection-induced or 
induced by a combination of the two. And it's certain that as Omicron sweeps through, if it is as transmissible as it seems to be, and if it does what, you know, one would expect it to do, I do feel as the baseline of immunity globally rises, I have to think that changes the game in some ways and that that those changes are to our advantage. I wanted to ask you kind of a a retrospective question on on the year that passed, because I think the sort of bifurcation of thought that you mentioned with respect to, you know, the opinions of Paul Offit and others is really fascinating. Like I'm speaking right now Thursday morning as a guy in the United States who has a booster appointment uh, in about two and a half hours, for which I'm looking forward to. But I agree with Offit that as a citizen of the world, it's absurd that a third dose is available to me when a first dose is unavailable to so many people in the world. But as a citizen of New York City and specifically like my part of Queens, it feels incumbent upon me. My responsibility is to get this booster so as to not contribute to the burden on the healthcare system, as you mentioned. And just holding those two thoughts in my head at the same time, I don't know. It's just like this this very, very modern conundrum that I think a lot of people, at least in this country, are dealing with. And so my question, I think I know how to land this plane with a question mark. You know, we're two years into this pandemic and about a year plus into um, vaccines being clearly efficacious and, and, and at least somewhat available. Are you surprised that we're still talking about this? In it, There's still such incredible inequities such that we have to do the sort of, you know, intellectual kabuki theater to, to fathom those two things at the same time? No, I'm not surprised. Um, disheartened? Yes. Surprised? No. Um, in 20, uh, 2009, there was a flu pandemic, the H1N1 pandemic. It was quite a mild pandemic. But um, that was sort of a precursor for this. You know, the WHO at the time tried very hard to set up a system whereby countries would that had vaccine production capacity would donate vaccine in real time uh, to a fund that the vac- that the WHO would then redistribute to countries that didn't have any production capacity. You know, it was um, a high-minded enterprise that worked poorly. Much of the vaccine that got donated was donated so late it wasn't used because the the pandemic had been mild and it sort of effectively... Um, stopped causing problems by the time countries could get the, the donated vaccine. Um, you know, if, if it worked as poorly as it did in 2009 with a mild pandemic, it was very predictable that it was going to work, you know, worse with a, a severe pandemic, which uh, this one I think would qualify as. On some levels, it's extraordinary how many vaccine doses have been produced and administered, not just here, but in other parts of the world. But the distribution has been so fundamentally unfair, uh, you know, with, with wealthy countries purchasing immense, you know, amounts of, of vaccine and preventing, um, the, that vaccine as a consequence from getting into the the COVAX pool that could distribute it to other countries. Um, it's clear that countries and regions that don't have capacity to make their own vaccine 
are going to remain incredibly vulnerable in years to come because this is not the last time this will happen. So um, just maybe to, to wrap up our conversation, thinking about the, the new and potentially dangerous variant we have on our doorstep right now, um, as we see case numbers so high, and we were just talking before we started recording about how we all know so many people recently have been diagnosed with COVID, most of them mild, thankfully, um, but and we know how much more contagious Omicron appears to be, and we're approaching the holiday season. I'm wondering, Helen, how are you approaching um, the, the risk of COVID right now? Are you making changes in your daily life? And just how do you think about that? Well, you know, I have been pretty cautious for the past couple of years. I don't eat in restaurants. I don't uh, go to, I'm not going to any holiday parties. I have traveled. I am going to be with family. We have a bunch of rapid tests that we're going to use over uh, the course of the holidays, especially if somebody who isn't in the bubble comes into the bubble. I probably will see a few friends, probably outdoors. I think we all have a date with COVID at some point. I just want to make sure that mine occurs when I have enough immunity on board that it's just, you know, an inconvenience and not a serious health threat. Well, on that upbeat note, (laughs) (laughs) Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) Happy holidays, Helen. Sorry, uh, you know, <laughs> we all expect this thing to be an endemic, right? And and we catch the flu, and no, you're right. Mostly, we yeah. survive. No, and right. um, I mean, it's the, it's the realistic point of view to have, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, Helen, uh, you know, as always, we 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 love having you on the show, uh, and uh, we look forward to having you on the show again many times in 2022. Well, happy holidays, all of you, and um, let's hope 2022 is a much kinder year. So I canceled my San Francisco travel plans, you two. Oh, man, had you booked a hotel already? Had the hotel, flights, the whole thing. I mean, you know, obviously the corporate the corporate travel agents are taking care of all that, but yeah, had to cancel. Okay, we should probably explain why we're talking about this. Yes, so Adam is not alone in canceling his travel to San Francisco because, as we learned this week, J.P. Morgan, the by far the biggest conference, I think, on the calendar uh, for biotech every year, finally relented and is no longer demanding that anybody who wants to present at their conference in January attend in person, and it will be virtual. So we're recording this on Thursday, and that's perhaps an unsurprising bit of news for anyone who wasn't tuned in. But the sort of breadcrumb trail to this point was, as we learned earlier in the week, major companies, including Amgen and Moderna, pulling out of the JP Morgan conference over the bank's demand that they intend attend in person for the very understandable reasons of one, not wanting to put their employees at risk by shipping them out to San Francisco into the cramped hallways of the Weston St. Francis Hotel, where J.P. Morgan is held, uh, while case counts are rising and Omicron is frightening 
everyone, but then also the the sort of zooming out reputational risk of being a healthcare company that contributes to what could have become a super spreader event. So, you know, we reported earlier in the week about uh, Amgen Moderna and another company, Sarepta Therapeutics, pulling out of the conference and a few other firms, including Vertex Pharmaceuticals and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, considering doing the same unless Jamie Dimon and his merry band of executives relented and made the conference virtual. And then we learned on Wednesday that they will indeed do exactly that. And we should note, I think you were sort of modest in your description of that. You guys broke the story that those companies uh, had pulled out and that there were multiple others making the same not even veiled threat. I mean, they were saying, <laughs> give us a virtual option or we're not going. And it just happened so fast. And there was so, such a narrative that Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, was one of the biggest proponents of in-person you know, work experiences, um, that he was not going to make this switch. And it, it quickly moved from not just give us a virtual option to completely virtual. And I have to wonder, you know, how much does like all of this Omicron modeling fit into this as you know, now people are expecting it to peak in mid January, essentially, right when the JP Morgan conference is happening. Yeah, this did feel kind of inevitable, like they were going to have to make this decision anyway. And and maybe our story kind of made it happen a little bit faster just because, you know, once it got once it became public that some of these really big companies, right, like, Am, I mean, Amgen and Moderna are big, big companies. Uh, they hold sway over the industry. So, you know, when they sort of come out and say, we're not going, I think it gives sort of license for a lot of companies to kind of make the same decision. And and that just forced J.P. Morgan's hand. Speaking of other big biotech news of the week, um, Rob Califf, the FDA commissioner nominee, had his Senate confirmation hearing. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways is even Meg, though he you, was... You, Meg, you pronounced his name right. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he's, You'll never he be a senator. He was commissioner, and his name was pronounced so wrong by so many of these senators. Roll clip. Dr. Cahill, enjoyed our conversation in my office uh, not too long ago. Dr. Cahill, thank you for your continued willingness to serve the country. So I'm wondering if you could, Dr. Cardiff, could you, based on your experience, what do you think about this idea? What do you and uh, thank you, Dr. Khalif, for being here. So, I mean, I guess the headline is that his confirmation hearing was pretty banal and, and thus suggesting that he will sail through to confirmation, which is perhaps unsurprising. But there were a few outstanding questions as to how the Senate, which has been pretty fractious uh, since uh, Joe Biden got elected president, um, would receive him. So, you know, there you go. There's your news. More importantly, Meg, I agree with you. A lot of our elected representatives have just not committed a lot of time to basic reading comprehension and articulation. I, I don't know. Maybe there's not much of a read through there. But I guess that moment was a little sobering, I think, for me, because I have spent so much time thinking and we have spent so much time on this podcast talking about the vacuum of leadership at the FDA and what it means for the pandemic and the drug industry and all these things. And then you tune into that hearing and not only were the senators not particularly um, emotional about opposing uh, Rob Califf from, from getting this job, but also not particularly committed to learning uh, how his name is pronounced. And so it, it reminds you of how small your little corner of the world can be sometimes. So, Meg, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, this will be our last episode for the year. So it's a good opportunity to kind of think about or reflect on biotech uh, 2021. Uh, and I wonder, you know, what are your takeaways, sort of non-COVID 
takeaways? Well, I did spend 99.9% of my year covering <laughs> COVID. True. So I'm probably not the person to toss <laughs> that question to. Um, <laughs> and the, the other 0.1% of my time was like covering your scoops on Biogen. Um, <laughs> I, I will say, just to round out the this week in biotech conversation, and then I'll pose the question to you guys. Um, there was a lot of news on COVID this week, too. I mean, Pfizer had the final results of its antiviral pill for COVID. Um, and of course, this is expected to hold up against Omicron. So a lot of hope there. Um, and the final results were exactly the same as the interim results, 89% uh, effective in preventing severe disease, hospitalization, or death um, when given to high-risk people within three days. That is really important because Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, had indicated the FDA was waiting on the final results before potentially clearing this drug because Merck's drug results changed so much between the interim and the final, going from about 50% down to 30%. Um, curiously, we still haven't seen the FDA act on emergency use authorization of Merck's molnupiravir, even though its ADCOM was November 30th, um, and it did get that positive vote, although it was close. So are we going to see them clear Pfizer's drug first? Uh, it doesn't appear that they've scheduled an ADCOM for it. It, it, you know, and Pfizer CEO has talked about it potentially being available this month. So we're talking about the next two weeks. Um, and I think a lot of people are really hoping we can get this kind of drug out there and get people tested quickly <clears throat> and give them access to it as we are just facing this enormous surge um, potentially coming from Omicron on top of Delta, which is really scary. Okay, we can talk about non-COVID stuff. What was the biggest takeaway from the year for you guys other than Biogen? <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess we have to say Biogen, but maybe that's all we really have to say because we've spent so much time talking about Biogen. But, you know, again, uh, you know, sort of objectively, Biogen and the approval of Aducanumab or Aduhelm uh, in June of this year, you know, was probably the biggest, I would say. Damien, don't you think that's probably the biggest non-COVID biotech story of the year? I mean, yes, but I have no sense of scale. Because <laughs> <laughs> basically it's all we've done all year. Well, one really interesting thing is that we've seen the power of biotech demonstrated through this pandemic. We, we didn't talk about you know the Regeneron news that came out Thursday morning, which is that their antibody drug looks like it loses potency against Omicron, but they've got others behind it that will hold up. And we just have to see how quick those can get through the regulatory process and, and through proving that they they work. Um, but as biotech has de demonstrated that, the rest of biotech that's not in COVID has had a really rough year. Like, what happened, Adam? Oh, yeah. It really, it's been a terrible year for sort of, like you said, non-COVID biotech. I mean, if you, if, you, if you just look from a stock perspective, you know, if you were not sort of directly involved with vaccines or, or therapeutics uh, against COVID, your stock is probably down a lot. Um, and so I think that points to just a lot of sort of structural things that got in the way uh, of, of biotech and, and, and I think need to be sorted out over the next year or two. You know, I mean, Damien, I know we've been talking about this, you know, the number of IPOs that were out there, just the flood of companies that have come public. So many of them, you know, still preclinical, early, early stage companies. Yeah. I mean, so the... Major biotech indices are down about like 20% for 2021. Now, if you zoom out, they're up like 80% over the last five years. So I don't, I will not shed any tears for the fund managers who are having a rough year because they're fine. But I think it does get back to like, you know, <laughs> the sort of like Feuerstein principle of there are too many biotech companies now. Uh, I was talking to Eli Kasdan, who runs Kasdan Capital, which is a, a biotech fund. 
um, last week. And he was talking about like, you know, his investment principles are, are very much focused on management. Like, is it a good, is the science good, obviously, but is it a good team? And I asked him, well, you know, there's so many biotech companies now to where they go public before we have a chance to lo- learn their names. And in some cases, they go kaput before we have a chance to learn their names. Um, I asked him, like, is the supply of good teams outmatched by the supply of apparently investable biotech opportunities, which is put another way, are there more companies than there are people who can run them? And his answer was yes, absolutely yes. The The boom of the past few years has put so much capital into this industry that ideas that are maybe before their time get invested in and people who are perhaps not ready to execute upon them get put in charge of them. And you know, the red tape of the past year is arguably evidence of the folly of that. So, you know, I think when you talk to people who've been in this business for a long time, they would look at this as like, you know, a necessary culling of the herd or whatever the, the farmhouse analogy is. And that, you know, COVID as evidence, cool stuff that works will prevail in biotech. But a lot of people might lose a lot of money in the process of figuring out what's a good idea and what's a bad idea. And if you think about the biotech stocks, you think about it over over a year period. I mean, r- right now, I mean, everyone is sort of obsessed with the fact that stocks are way down year to date. But if you think back to like January and February, uh, and even going into sort of last fall, you know, they were stocks were zooming, right? I mean, they're like all the, the indices were hitting all time highs. We saw like CRISPR, anything CRISPR related, genome editing related stocks hitting all time high, like incredible valuations. A lot of that, by the way, driven by Kathy Wood and the ARC funds, and they were investing tons and tons of money, buying up as much of these stocks as they could. And they were getting all that inflow, billions and billions of dollars of inflows into the ARC ETFs, which were driving that and kind of creating, if you think about it, this kind of a bubble in 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 biotech stock valuations back in the early part of the year. And that all sort of unraveled, right? And and now if you think about where stocks are down from the high, you know, sort of like February, I mean it's even worse. So we asked Helen in the previous segment, now I'm gonna ask you guys, 2022 predictions or one thing you're really watching closely next year? Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> prediction, I, uh, I'm just dumb enough to think I know what's going to happen, but just smart enough to not say it on a podcast. Um, but I think, <laughs> you know, this is fundamentally a podcast about SARS-CoV-2 and a company called Biogen. Uh, and it's very difficult to direct my thoughts away from that. I think 2022 is going to be fascinating for Alzheimer's disease. Mm. We learned just on Thursday that Biogen will start the confirmatory trial they promise, which, you know, data will be expected in, I think, 2026. So that's kind of a matter for another day. But in the meantime, we will learn just how well Eli Lilly's competing Alzheimer's treatment works. We will learn just how well Biogen's next Alzheimer's treatment works. And, you know, there's a world in which both of those win FDA approval in 2022, early 2023, something like that. And just the whole conversation we've had about Aduhelm could shift when there are suddenly a multitude of, I wouldn't call them Aduhelms per se, but a multitude of relatively similar drugs to where, you know, we, we spoke so much about how Aduhelm, despite all its problems, was the first therapeutic approved for Alzheimer's disease in nearly 20 years. Well, there could be three or even four within the next two years. And that's something that I'm, I, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm definitely going to be paying attention to. I would say M and A, Meg. Hmm. Watch, you know, watch for acquisitions potentially because, you know, I, I don't want to say valuations are 
super low, but they're certainly more uh, logical today than they were earlier in the year. And, you know, that coupled with the billions of dollars that um, Big Pharma has, uh, you know, in their war chests. I mean, you look at a company like Pfizer, which, you know, is obviously just generating tons and tons of cash, you know, from COVID. You know, they just bought Arena Pharmaceuticals. Um, and so maybe we're seeing a little bit of this uptick in M and A. Um, you know, it, it was you know, look, 2020 was a bad year for M and A. It was down from uh, it was down from 2020, and so um, you know, maybe this is like a rebound year, or, or 2022 will be a rebound year for for M and A. Meg, what's your prediction? You can't just you can't just shunt that onto well, us and then may, not follow. Maybe through. maybe Meg will spend only 75 percent of her time covering COVID. <laughs> that would be extremely optimal. Um, my I, I'm not going to give a prediction. I'm going to give a hope and it has to be about COVID because that is what I spent all my time on. I hope 2022 is the year we actually see it become endemic and it seems horrible to wish that we're going to have this virus with us forever, but endemicity seems to be the best we can absolutely hope for at this point. And uh, when I say endemic, I mean in the actual way that folks like Dr. Fauci talk about it, not in the way that you hear people talking about COVID being manageable right now when we have hospitals getting overwhelmed. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci talks about it like fewer than 10,000 cases per day or even fewer than that, you know, around 3,000 cases per day to the extent that we are not thinking about this as our primary concern when leaving the house to the extent that we're getting back together in person. Um, maybe we can record our podcast in person where everybody can be together at Stats headquarters. That would be amazing. That is what I'm hoping for next year. And I hope to spend many more Thursdays recording podcasts with both of you <laughs> and maybe talking a little bit less about COVID. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud, the last of 2021. And for this episode, of course, we would like to thank Teresa Gaffney for producing this episode and Hyacinth Empanado for also producing this episode. But in general, we would like to extend uh, a larger thank you to them for dealing with us for the entirety of the calendar year 2021 and for, I think, at least contractually uh, signing up to deal with us for the calendar year 2022. Here, here. Yes. We'd also like to thank Alyssa Ambrose, our senior producer, who uh, puts up with us every week and sometimes tries to get us to talk about things other than COVID and Biogen and sometimes succeeds. So thank you, Alyssa. <laughs> and of course, a big, big thanks to our big, big boss, uh, executive producer, Rick Burke. Thank you, Rick. And we couldn't do it, of course, without our theme music, which is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you're looking forward to in 2022. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, of course you like what we do. Leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next year. Oh, Ooh. good one, Damien. Yes. Yeah. Off, yeah. Just nice. Like a jazz, your feet. A jazz musician. <laughs> That's what we call doing it live. Christmas time is here, happiness and cheer, fun for all that children call their favorite time of year. Snowflakes in the air carols everywhere olden times and ancient rhymes of love and dreams to share